Hello and welcome to Movement, the weekly podcast for South Aussie Baptists to listen and imagine together. Each fortnight, we interview a leader from within our movement and then ask them to share one of their recent sermons with us the following week. Welcome back. We are back again this week with Mike Bartlett. So last week we had the opportunity to sit down with Mike and hear a bit about his life story, his faith, his ministry journey. And um, today we're back with a sermon. So Mike, could you tell us why did you choose this particular sermon to share with us? Yeah, well, the reason that this sermon comes today is because I wanted to give something that was recent. And this is as recent as last Sunday. And the reason for that is, is that our friend Dave Shepherd, pastor up at Hills Baptist Church, Verdun. They're in the middle of a series in the book of Samuel. And I actually asked Dave if it would be okay if I would preach on this text, because I've actually always wanted to preach on this text because I really value humor, both <laughs> in the text and in preaching. And I think there's some inherent humor in this text, but I'm also really interested, um, not just in this text, as pertains to David, but the person David in scripture and the archetypes that he represents for us as well and what we can learn from from those archetypes, but also not just for him, but the, the way that those archetypes sort of set the scene for Jesus, but then also as Jesus followers, what it is that they they might have to say to us. So it was an opportunity for me to to explore some new ground yeah, I just, I really enjoyed both the opportunity to, to go up and share with the community up there and uh, they were very kind to me and um, yeah, I, I hope that people enjoy it. Thanks, we're looking forward to listening to it. No worries. Good morning everybody, how are you? It's great to see you, it's great to be back in the hills. I actually grew up in the hills, Allgate Baptist Church was my church when I grew up, I went to Cornerstone College. And it was just such a reminder when I got out of the car, when I got up here, that I was thankful that I had put an extra layer on. It was a fair few degrees cooler. Um, I, uh, like Dave said, since May have been serving as uh, with oversight for accredited ministry formation for, for Baptist churches after nine years as a lead pastor of King's Baptist Church, which is in Golden Grove. I understand that's past the mullet-proof fence that is Grand Junction Road, so you might not have ever been there. But um, it's a lovely place. Um, It's great to be with you this morning. It's great to see what God is doing up here uh, in this community. And it's my privilege and honour to share the word with you today. There are characters in Scripture who embody an interesting English word, one that I'm sure many of you have heard of before, and it's the word archetype, a word that means a similar thing as trope, which is just a fancier way of saying type. And archetypes are defined as universal, inborn models of people, behaviours and personalities that play a role in influencing human behaviour. It was the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, who really developed this concept and brought it into the sort of common consciousness. If this is all sounding a bit academic, the basic idea is this, that one of the ways that learnings about what humanity is like and the information that is embedded in human beings that gets passed from one generation to the next is through characters that inhabit these types. 
The texts of all the world's major religions are filled with archetypes of many kinds, and the story of the man David in Scripture is definitely one of those stories that wraps up all kinds of archetypes. Who David was and how he became who he would become is archetypical in all sorts of ways. And so if you're familiar with the scriptural narrative, which I'm sure many of you are, you realize there are, of course, many stories about David that could be used to illustrate the reality of his representation as an archetype. If I want to talk to you about a story of a giant versus a minnow, what do you think of? Come on, folks, you're going to have to warm up a little bit here. David and Goliath, right? Uh, If we're going to have a quintessential story about adultery, who are you thinking of? Correct. Well done. We're warming up a little bit. But there's one particular story about David that's always really intrigued me. And maybe it's because I love the places where we find real humour in the Bible, and I've found this story at some level somewhat hilarious. But for whatever reason, I've never preached on it, and, uh, and I've been doing this for a while now. So I was honoured when uh, your own King David asked me to speak here at church. <laughs> this wasn't actually the scripture that he gave me to speak on. So I asked if uh, I could just alter things a little bit, and he graciously agreed. And just on that note, it's been fun to get to know you, Dave. And uh, Joe, I just met you, but your family is beautiful and Folks, you're lucky, lucky, blessed, providentially blessed to have these folks as uh, shepherding your family. And isn't it funny that their name is Shepherd and they're Shepherd? That's, yeah. Um, Don't forget to pray for them, okay? They're good folks. In fact, on that note, why don't we pray together? Is that all right? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, uh, I've got some words here that... I feel like you've laid on my heart. And through the power of your spirit, may you take it from the meditation of my heart into all of our hands and feet, feet and lives uh, for the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Here's what I want to do. I want to lay out the story for you, see what's in the text And we'll explore some of the archetypes that we find in that story, how they relate to other stories about David. And we'll see how they actually set the story up for Jesus or point to Jesus. Because that's what all of this and all of history is actually about, yeah? Yes? Come on. I I mean, like, I got to tell you that I am Baptist died in the wool, but I don't mind a bit of Baptocostal action going on, so... All right, I, I, I'm, when I'm looking for a response, it's going to get super awkward if I have to pause a couple of times every time. So just give me some love, folks. That's what we're going to do. So here's the deal as we approach our text today. There's a man named Saul. He was anointed and appointed king over Israel. And he had God's blessing in every possible way that you could want or imagine Now, he's not the focus of our text today, but he too is archetypical in many ways because he's very much representative of the human condition condition of endless desire 
an unmet expectation. He is the biblical version of... We got any musical theatre fans in the house? Alexander Hamilton? Yeah? I will never be satisfied. You know, yeah. He's never satisfied. It's never enough. He's the embodiment of the saying, be careful what you wish for. Or the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting exactly what you want. He always wanted more than he has. He wanted God to do more than he was doing and faster than he was doing it. And the story of Saul's interaction with God and David is super interesting. But like I said, it's David who's the focus of our investigation today. But I needed to tell you that just before I get to our first verses. And these are the verses that really set everything up. Here's all you need to know before we get to this key story. It says that David succeeded in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Saul saw that he succeeded remarkably and was and was afraid. Saul has what we would call a scarcity mindset. He's not happy when someone else does well. The Smiths, led by that singer Morrissey, now I'm showing my age, they had a song called We Hate It When Our Friends Are Successful. He's the embodiment of that kind of sentiment. Now, the story of Saul is ultimately a tragedy, and a tragedy that when we come to our story today is actually in the throes of its conclusion. And it's compared and contrasted with the relative comedy that is the story of David. But as we approach this story that, like I said, has some real comedy within... What's happened is, is that King Saul of Israel had been completely overtaken by fear, rage, enmity, jealousy of this man, David. What did Saul's wanting want? Everything that he wasn't, even though what he was was substantial. His life was not orientated correctly. He was missing the mark of what it meant to be a king for the people over whom he was steward. His whole life at the point we get to our text was focused on killing David. He was pursuing him with the army of Israel in the wilderness. And David's on the run. He has been on the run for some time. He's hiding in a cave in a region known as En Gedi, near the crags of wild goats, we're told. It's one of the ways that we know the story actually is tangibly and historically tied to reality is by the actual mention of the landscape to which it's tied to. In this particular landscape where he's hiding are these caves known in and around this place where the sheep pens are. Shepherds could presumably rest their sheep where they were in fact penned up for the night. It's an area with which David was well familiar and thus along with his men, he's taken refuge hiding within one of the caves. Saul and his men are after him and wouldn't you know it, they stop at the very cave where David and his men are hiding. And Saul calls a halt to his men's 
March. He says, lads, just ease up a minute. Nature is calling. <laughs> Saul says, my back teeth are floating. I need to take a break. And uh, Saul steps into the cave in which David and his men are hiding. And David's men urge him to make the most of the moment and to take the life of this man who would surely take his if he had the opportunity. David doesn't do that, but what he does do is creep up behind the king, the robed king in all his regalia, and snips off a corner of his cloak. David crept up unnoticed, And then presumably not much time passes at all when we read this. That David was conscious, conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. And then as Saul leaves... David makes himself known and there's this interaction then that follows that's actually worthy of a number of sermons to be honest but even that interchange is not the focus of our message today. It actually suffices just to say it's a moment actually of vindication for David and a stark sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that Saul comes to confess to David that he knows that his end and the end of his reign is near and David's is just about to take off. It is Father's Day and I know some of you are looking forward to lunch. So let's get down to business. But you see, right now I know that you're saying to yourself, wow, an exploration of the archetypes in the character of David with a view to seeing how they point to Jesus, told through a story about urination. It's going to be great. Yes, it is. So let's look at these archetypes, hey? Let's look at them. Let's see what they've got to say to us with regard to not just their original context, but the way they point to Jesus but also what they've got to reveal to us as we go out into our next week as the scattered church before coming back as the gathered church. Isn't it so awesome to sing as a gathered church, just to worship? I just want to thank the worship team this morning for blessing me personally. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was really good. Folks, I know how much effort it takes to do this kind of a thing, to load in, load out. People are here early giving so much of themselves. It's such a blessing. So the first of the archetypes that I want to investigate starts with the letter K, and that's because David was a keeper of sheep. David was a shepherd, which is funny, like I said, because David is shepherd. Doesn't matter, it's just ironic, I guess. So let's go with K for a keeper of sheep because the other two archetypes also start with K and I wanted them all to start with the same letter, you know, like preachers do because they like annoying little acrostic poems and acronyms and that sort of thing. 
Are you a big fan of those, Dave? Yeah, okay. I'm a big fan of letters too. K is for keeper of sheep. Remember that when David was found as the next king of Israel, he was keeping sheep. As the last bloke that you expected to be the next king. But what we read about him when Samuel comes to anoint him is that he's brought in from the field and the text tells us that he was ruddy. I'm still not sure what that means. I don't know if it's a compliment, but I think it must be because not only was he ruddy, but he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. The shepherd boy would become a king. But it shouldn't be lost on us that that original reality in which he's grounded shaped his life and is archetypical for Jesus and also for what we're called to do as his followers. During the time of David and during the time of Jesus, shepherds were of a lowly status. He was out in the field for a reason because he was the youngest in the family. This is what the least of those did. There was an inherent humility in being a shepherd. It was a blue-collar job, maybe a blue-robed job. But in the same way, I think, when you stop and think about it, that even when you today meet someone who makes their living off of working the land, you find that as you get to talking with them. If they can take a break from their hard work to talk with you, they tend to be earthy people. Calloused hands, often skin as tough as old footy boots, the colour of nicotine and earwax. Seemed like a good colour to me. But people who wear the results of their life on their face. People familiar with the land, the weather, the seasons, the terrain, places of shelter, places of danger, places of provision for their livestock. People that are often appreciative of natural ecosystems, a cognizant of raw natural beauty. But in addition to that, shepherds had to be people of the deepest care. And if you stop and think about it, there's good reason to see why the type or the trope pops up again and again on the journey to Jesus. It was shepherds, of course, who were blessed to be some of the first receivers of the message about Jesus being born. And remember, it was Jesus himself who called himself, I am the good. I am the good. My sheep know me and know my voice. This is not insignificant. Shepherds were humble. They were knowledgeable and pragmatic. They were Jack and Jillaroos. But they were also deep carers. They cared about what they looked after because it wasn't just theirs, it was their family's livelihood. Passed down from generation to generation, it was a job that demanded earthy and earthly wisdom. And it's not by chance or insignificance that the image is given to us for those who are called to lead the church. When Paul talks about what it is to be gifted to do this, he says in Ephesians 4.11, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And that word, that Greek word pastors, is the Greek word poimenos. Let's say that together. Poimenos. 
actually quite literally translates as shepherds. But the question for us then is not just for those of us that are in ministry. All of us have been given roles, people to walk alongside, wisely steward, resources, people to care for, look after their welfare, even sometimes at the expense of our own. You know, sometimes, though, talking about pastors as shepherds can sound very cuddly, you know? Oh, he's a real shepherd of a guy. But don't be fooled. Remember that David the shepherd, the way that he actually rose to prominence was by virtue of that great archetypical story, David and Goliath. And when told he would be no match for the giant warrior Goliath, David said that when he's a shepherd, has been in the field, and there's been bears and lions that sought out his flock. When, I turned on, when, when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. It's a manly man right here. What I'm trying to make an inference to is that wise, diligent and courageous shepherding is a role that is not for the faint of heart, whether you are leading a church or a parent in a family. This is why Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life. Watch it. Become an observer of your life. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. David was a keeper of sheep. Jesus is our shepherd. If you have oversight, care, Stewarding responsibilities for anything. You too are a shepherd. Take it to heart. Archetype number two. I I decided to do three archetypes that start with the letter K, but we won't put all those Ks together. Um, But the second K uh, is for conqueror. Uh, This is the old English spelling. uh, Or maybe I just wanted it to start with K. David was a conqueror. He was known and is remembered for being victorious. People ranted about him. They they made up songs about him. They wrote a song that Saul killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. What's important, though, to the biblical narrative is the way that he was victorious. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord came on David, and it was from that day forward that David David rose to leadership over the nation of Israel because, Scripture tells us, that the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And what is that very heart of God that David was emblematic of? Well, you find it over and over again in the Psalms, perhaps never more so than in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and create a right spirit in me. You got any old school Keith Green fans here? Yeah. Cast me not. I'll say. Showing my age there. David's 
grounding as a shepherd comes with him to leadership in humility. And it turns out that humility is the only ground that God grows his trees in that bear true fruit. But to learn humility is to often experience humiliation. And David was somebody who, when this was taking place, Saul had spread lies about him and he had been on the run for ages. And you can read about the Psalms he wrote when he was on the run. And they're just full of this expression of what is happening to my life. I'm being made to be something that is not true. Expressed the fullness of who he was and the disappointment that he had and yet always came to putting his hope back in the Lord. But listen, the way that this translates into Jesus, our shepherd, when he speaks of his own heart for us in the instruction to his disciples when he says, take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anyone need a soul rest this morning? The question for us that comes from looking at David the Conqueror, and what it means to think about Jesus as the humble conqueror and the way that he actually conquered, i.e. laying down his life for his friends, challenges us to think about the condition of our own hearts. How are your hearts this morning? Are they humble? Are they proud? Are they angry? Are they sad? Are they bitter? Are they confused? Much to think about there. The third of the archetypes I want to present to you and the strongest by far of all the Davidic archetypes of David is that of the king. And of course, as we'll get to, he wasn't perfect. But on the whole, David is regarded by the biblical text as the archetypical Israelite king. And that's because for a significant part of his story, he embodied the leadership that God wanted to bring to bear on the whole earth through the nation of Israel. The theological concept here is election. N.T. Wright says this about it. It's quite clear on the one hand, particularly in the Psalms, that David and his dynasty are to be seen as God's answer to the problem of evil. They will bring judgment and justice to the world. The dominion will be from one sea to the other, from the river to the ends of the earth. For a large part of the narrative, David is presented to us as indeed a benevolent dictator of sorts, a king built up and held in the imagination of Israel as the greatest of all kings. So much so that even in the gap of hundreds of years between the Old and the New Testament, and at the time that Jesus comes to us, in different ways in the socio-political sort of divisions amongst the people of Israel, they are expecting a kingdom of God. And when they talk about the kingdom of God, they're not expecting someone floating down from heaven. They're expecting someone in the ilk of David. This was what they had in their imagination. There's much to say here that I I think could be said, but, but more than anything, what I want to highlight what we see take place 
in this story in the cave where one thing is possible and David chooses another is representative of what he has articulated in one of the Psalms that isn't read very often. I haven't heard it in many liturgies for a long time, but what you'll read in Psalm 16.6 is that David says this when he's in his kingdom, leading Israel, and he says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Surely I have a a pleasant inheritance. This was was a, a king who understood that it was God that had anointed him. This was a king, however, who understood the reality of limits, of boundaries. The whole idea of limits and boundaries is a fascinating idea today in a day where the underlying narrative of our society is one of unmitigated and unfettered growth. What do we hear about when the economy is shrinking. Oh no, right? That can only be bad. And yet, even in the midst of that, we hear this sort of movement that's taking place underground towards minimalism. People are getting sick of the idea that just more stuff is the answer. And again, Jesus follows in this sort of same vein in terms of, well, it's only within the narrative of Israel's covenant to God, of which David is a key kingly figure, and which in line with David, Jesus enters the story, and it's only in line with that that the redemption story of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross makes any sense. Jesus comes for the whole world, but you'll notice something about Jesus is that he's not ever trying to be everywhere, everything to all people. Jesus says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus had a very keen understanding of what was his to do. It's really something. Have a look in your Gospels this week. Jesus is never frantic. Never. Jesus is never frantic or anxious until perhaps we get to the passion narrative, and that's understandable, I think. But you know, the great philosopher Dallas Willard was asked, hey, could you, do you think that you could describe Jesus Christ in one word? And he sat there for a couple of seconds, this was at a conference, and he said, yeah, relaxed. Jesus is relaxed. And I think there's something to that as his followers. And especially in the reality of an age where we are more anxious than ever, and not without reason, but as Jesus' followers, perhaps one of the ways that we've got real salt and real light to give to a hurting world is by being non-anxious presence. Extraordinary limits were a part of Jesus' story. You think about all the temptations in the desert. They were all temptations to more, bigger, Less, God, my responsibility for what he's given me to do. We've all got limits to live with, folks. Limits, some of them are unbreakable by nature. Gravity, time, the West Australian border. 
But in thinking about this reality of Jesus, I want to encourage you to think about the pleasant boundaries of your life. Think about your family, your husband, your wife, your kids, those that you work with, study with, interact with day in, day out. What is in your circle? What are you called to give your attention to? I encourage you, turn off the news. Well, most of it anyway. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Even when coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he did that through the story of Israel. We've got to live within our own story. It's a deeply Christian idea. And if coronavirus has taught us anything, it's not only that can you not do everything, sometimes you can't even do much. But it's got to do with not just thinking about what we do with our hands and our feet, but it's got to do with what we do with our mental attention. How much are we thinking about what it is that God is calling us to and working it through with him? And how much are we worried about how many likes we've got on Facebook or Instagram? I've had a mantra this year that I got from somebody else, but I really liked it. What other people think of me is none of my business. All right, here we go. We're turning the corner. We're done with the K's. We're moving to P's, which is funny because it's a story. It doesn't matter. Also fascinating with David is that having risen from the youngest of brothers who is a shepherd to become a king, what we have in David is, of course, the full, huge expression in a sense of the gamut of human emotions. He was a musician and a poet. In fact, some people think maybe the greatest poet that ever lived, he's historically credited as the author of more of the Psalms than anybody else. And what David gives beautiful license to then, to us, is the full spectrum of human emotional possibilities. And so while the book of Samuel and the narrative story we've been looking at is the story from the outside, what happened and to whom, the book of Psalms is all about David's interior world. And what you find there is what you probably would have found within your own life. Hope, jubilation, fear, anxiety. Remorse, longing, revenge, lament, sadness, ecstatic love. If you give yourself to the poetry of David, it's like listening to that music that for you is that sense of being brought up out of our present reality and into the transcendent. I don't know what that is for you. It seems to be changing for me as I get older. I'm 42 now, which is apparently the year where we find the meaning of life. Anyone get that joke? Yeah, Douglas Adams. Yeah, anyway. But you know, just as a case in point, I've been getting into classical music and I'm really proud of it. (laughs) I went running the other day and I'm listening to Johann Sebastian Bach. And, And I... I'm seriously, I'm up the top of this hill around the Tetra Gully area in the foothills and it was almost like the cellist was like vibrating reality into life. I was crying. Maybe it's a midlife crisis, I'm not sure, but I just thought it was beautiful. 
And the reason it's important to note David as an archetypical poet is because this is also how Jesus actually comes to us. The great poets were the prophets. And it's as a prophet that Jesus comes to us, very much so. You go through your Gospels and see how many times to start with, Jesus quotes the Psalms. But at every turn, Jesus also is his own creator of poetic imagery. Read all his parables, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Jesus is asked question after question, meant to confound him and trap him. And his response time after time is, let me tell you a story. And they were stories that were like poetic kung fu, you know? It was sort of like they'd ask him a question, he'd tell a story and then just mic drop out, you know? And the reason it's important for us as Jesus followers is because God wants our hearts. And if he wants our hearts, he wants everything that is in them. And that's a lot. God can cope with your honesty. God can cope with your complexity. God can cope with your contradictions and complaints. Sometimes I've got, I think we've got this view that, that we can only pray when we have got our lives in some sort of order. But what we see from Jesus on the cross is crying out in the midst of his utmost suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are David's words. They can be our words when we need them. You know, even in the belly of the whale, where Jonah is for three days, and he prays, what do you think he prays? It's a reconstructed psalm. We need the language of the psalms with which to communicate with God. I want to encourage you to get into the psalms. They're a great gift for us in developing our life with God. It's how we participate with God in conversation. Psalm 40 is maybe most familiar to some of us who are fans of you too. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry. It's an incredible psalm. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. They're words that you can sit with, you can wait with, you can let them go from your head to your heart. Friends, we are invited, especially in today's day and age, to think about approaching the problems of our world of which there are more than enough to go around, not with a direct head-on battle, but by learning to tell stories sideways, by learning to be poets and prophets, by thinking about what's that unique expression I've got to give maybe as an artist in service to God. This is what this archetype of the poet invites us into. We come to the time in the message where I want to look at probably my favourite of the archetypes that David represents in this story for sure, but also elsewhere. And it's the archetype that's been written about extensively in some cultures. It's known as the trickster because it starts with a P. I'm going to call him a prankster. Three P's, they need to be P's, right? But when Saul is relieving himself and David sneaks in and cuts off a corner of David's robe, the fact that it was 3,000 years ago make it impossible to know for certain, but it's possible that it, it 
the corner of his robe might have looked something like this. This is a a Jewish prayer tassel off of a a prayer shawl. shawl. It's actually called a tzitzit. (laughs) Say that if you like. It feels fun. Tzitzit. Tzitzit. Anyway, while Saul is doing a wee, um, David creeps in. And you know, his kingly garments are such that he is unaware when David snips off either the corner of his cloak or a tassel or something like this. And it's funny, of course, and every commentator I've read actually says this, so don't think I'm just being crass for the heck of it, but it is a statement saying, hey, buddy, I could have killed you or I could have cut something else off. And in so cutting something else else off would have emasculated Saul and his, the whole lineage of his family. And so his restraint was an exercise in self-control. But it's sort of like, you know, the trickster. Oh, I could kill him. I won't kill him. I'll just shame him. <laughs> That'll be funny. You can think he creeps back to all of the boys that have been encouraging him to kill him. He's like, look what I got. Good one. Yeah, good one, Dave. But it's perhaps something of the David's trickster as well that can, to some extent, of course, be seen when he captures the Ark of the Covenant and dances before God. And we're told he's wearing some sort of like minimal priestly garment that may have exposed some parts of himself. There's this stained glass from a church in Michigan somewhere that I just thought was kind of cool in its expression. David was unashamed of the joy that he felt that the Lord's presence was with him, and he really didn't care. His wife was none too pleased, of course, if you know the story. But the trickster's purpose, the prankster, when operating in a spirit of benevolence, is humor, reckless abandon for joy. You know, and there's something of the trickster in Jesus when he turns water into wine. Now, this will be a good one. You know, when Jesus turns all the water into wine, I, I can just see... You know, all of the help in the kitchen just applauding. Oh, good one, Jesus. That's great. Give us another one. Or when he's sleeping in the boat during the storm, like it's sinking. They're actually about to drown. What's he doing? He's sleeping. Where's your faith? Oh, good one, Jesus. For us as followers of Jesus, here's the question. What is it that we have as his followers to offer the world if we don't have joy? if we don't have some fun and some humour. I worked with a few Irish guys for a number of years and they have a particular word to describe joy. It's a really strange word. It doesn't make any sense in the Australian context. And they would would say, they called me Mick, of course. My name's Michael and I've only ever expressed myself as Mike, but they, they promptly shortened that to Mick. Come on, Mick, we're going to have some crack tonight or what? It's, and it's this word, crack. And I was like, I will not be having crack tonight. <laughs> no, thank you. But it's spelled C-R-A-I-C. I think it's some actual Irish word. I don't know, but we're going to have the crack tonight. Anyway, it just means having fun, right? Is that enjoying what happens in participation with each other and the divine nature. 
That's why when we come together as the gathered church to worship, there should be that sense of, oh, being lifted up out of whatever it is that has held us back during the week. My favorite poet, Wendell Berry, he said, be joyful because it is humanly possible. We need joy if people are gonna receive what we've got to give them. And that's why, you know, along with that reference to the Irish, there's a Celtic proverb that says, never give a sword to a man that can't dance. If you're gonna go to war, you gotta learn to celebrate when it's time to do so as well. Are you a follower of Jesus? Is there joy in your life? I think there should be. And joy, of course, is much deeper than just feeling happy. It's that which is given to us as a gift of grace, regardless of circumstance. All right, we're rounding home. And it's been great to share these archetypes with you. And the final one I want to leave with you is actually a little bit of a red flag. It's a warning. Because the final P of our archetypes that I want to explore is what we find when the shadow sides of these archetypes come together. You see, the story of David at this moment in this cave with Saul is very much giving honour to God and recognising that he's in control. But if you know the story, you'll know that later on the story of David turns and the keeper of sheep becomes the keeper of himself. The conqueror seeks personal sexual conquest. The benevolent dictator becomes obsessed with his own benevolence for himself. And the poetry of the Psalms turns into the poetry of Leonard Cohen. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof and you saw her bathing on the roof and her beauty in the moonlight overthrew. Anyone want to sing the rest? When the pranksters pranks turn dark and murderous, what we see in David's failure is nothing less than an archetype in itself. It's an archetype because every other king would go the same way in some shape or form. And that's why the final piece stands for where we end up when our faith gets lost. We turn our attention from the Lord to ourselves, separated from God by our sin, we become nothing less than pathetic. This is where our sin leaves us, and this is the image of David. Laid low by his sin, the consequences are horrific. His life takes a turn that it did not need to take. And what we learn from the story of of David and Bathsheba is that it doesn't matter how great you've been, every human is only one choice away from failure, significant sometimes. We know this from almost every page of Scripture, but we also know it in ourselves. But even in that, there's a gift because we know that when we come up short, as all have except Christ, that's when we press into Christ because the gift of Christ is this, As Romans tells us, the righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ is to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. There's no difference between David or you or me. All we can do is accept that it's through Christ and his faithfulness that we are brought into his presence. To finish with, I just want to share with you that for a couple of years, I had the very 
significant gift of working with folks who were in the midst of the crisis that goes with mental illness and addiction and homelessness, many folks who were in 12-step fellowships like NA and AA. And I don't know if any, I would anticipate with a room this size, there would be some who have been in meetings like that. And when those meetings finish, there's a prayer that is prayed. And the prayer says of sorts, it's a prayer to one another, but the invitation to God, and it says, remember that we deal with alcohol or whatever, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. For all of us, whatever gets, whatever needs to be can be slotted into that prayer remember that we deal with stinginess greed aggression pornography alcohol cunning baffling powerful without help it's too much for us and that's david's story without help Life is too much. It's our story. Without help, it's too much. And even today, whatever life has thrown you this week, this month, this year, the beauty of the gathered church is that it's an opportunity to give to God afresh that which is in the way. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to pray with someone. I know there's people that would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you if you'd like to. And that's good news, folks. Can I invite you to stand and pray with me? Through the work of God's Spirit, of your Spirit, Lord Jesus, would you create a clean heart in us? Would you help us to let go of what it is that holds us back? And to embrace all that can be in your kingdom, whether that be attention that needs to be given to that which you've given us to be responsible for or you're inspiring us to create with our hands and our hearts and our heads. Lord, you are active and at work amongst us. We look forward to what you're going to do in and through us this week in Jesus' resurrected name as people said. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Movement today. If you enjoyed this show, then please take a second to give us five stars, tap subscribe, and tell a friend. We are available wherever you get your pods. Season two of Movement is hosted and produced by the team at Baptist Churches of SA. We'll be back next week with another special guest.